0: The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production.
1: Excessive prolonged heat and little rain reaches natural disaster proportions. Extreme heat also leads to more deaths than any other weather-related events. I'm Frederica Freiberg tonight on Here and Now, the Farm Bureau on the effects of severe drought conditions. Plus, a climate and health expert on staying safe in excessive heat. The Feds raise interest rates again. How is the Wisconsin economy faring? And an agency report on restraints used on students with disabilities. It's Here and Now for July 28th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. At the mercy of Mother Nature, farmers without any sort of irrigation are being left high and dry, but some relief is in sight. The U.S. Department of Agriculture declared 27 Wisconsin counties are under a natural disaster designation due to the extended and severe drought conditions. The designation opens up resources to farmers within those counties, including emergency loans. For more on how Wisconsin farmers are faring, we turn to Kevin Krantz, president of the Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation. And thanks very much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me today.
1: So for farmers in counties designated as an extreme drought, is this a total bust for crops at this point?
2: Uh, no, not necessarily, uh, but there, there's definitely a huge amount of stress uh, out there on those on those crops uh, beginning in, in early May. Uh, this, this drought uh, really started in early to mid May and some of those seeds really had trouble even germinating and coming out of the ground And that's affecting the whole uh, growing season. And we have inconsistencies when we're going through pollination right now. And uh, that's gonna uh, affect yield a great great deal.
1: So how would you describe the condition of the corn, soybean, and oat crops?
2: It's extremely variable. And, And I would throw wheat in there as well. Um, a, a lot of our vegetables are in the Central Sands region. Many of that is, has the opportunity to be irrigated, uh, but there is some dry land as, as well. Uh, so the vegetables are also uh, part of this. But um, on the row crop side of it, uh, the corn, the soybeans, the wheat, there's a lot of inconsistencies across the state. There's some areas that received timely rains, um, maybe not as much as they probably could have, but they received timely rains that really, uh, we're able to capture some of that and, and be able to um, be a decent yield, at least in the wheat crops so far. But there's some uh, many parts of the state that are really struggling.
1: Yeah, for sure. Do most farmers have crop insurance? And does that cover all losses?
2: So the crop insurance, yeah, there's many, many farmers that do have crop insurance, but um, it's expensive to buy to a certain level. So most farmers will cover... 65 to 70% of their crop, maybe up to 80%. But when you're talking about the livestock industry here in Wisconsin, uh, we gotta have feed for the cows. So it's not only being able to sell that crop, it's being able to have enough feed for your, co- for your animals uh, at the end of the day.
1: So what are the concerns around that right now?
2: Well, I, again, it comes back to if you can't raise it, then you have to purchase it. And if this uh, drought is widespread enough uh, those those crops have to be trucked in a longer distance now we do uh, we are fortunate here in the upper midwest that the majority of our our grains are grown right here in the Midwest, so there should be plenty of of grain to feed our livestock it 's just a matter of some farms won't be able to produce enough themselves to feed their own livestock, so they 'll have to purchase some of that,
1: yeah. What does the federal disaster declaration do for farmers in, in Bad Straits right now?
2: So it, it gives the ability for some, some low-cost loans, uh, again, to purchase feed, uh, to be able to cover some of those uh, inputs that we've had on planting the crop to begin with. Um, so it, it, it covers some of those those losses.
1: Will provisions in the state budget for increased funding for crop insurance to include things like uh, help with premiums help offset costs for producers at all?
2: So maintaining, we're we're in the midst of a uh, farm bill discussion on a federal level, uh, and the crop insurance program is part of that. And maintaining a robust crop insurance program is good for everybody. It's good for farmers to be able to protect uh, their their crops, uh, but it's also good for consumers because uh, essentially that's that's feed and uh, food that comes back to us as consumers and uh so so it's it's a food security program as well
1: so given all that how how important are our major crops to our state's economy
2: oh uh, extremely important uh when you when you're talking um the vegetable side of things uh, we're number two and and uh Potatoes, number one, and cranberries, uh, but corn and soybeans uh, again go to feed a lot of our livestock industry. Uh, we're number two in the dairy industry uh, in in the nation, uh, right up there with the beef industry as well. Uh, so it's it's extremely important uh, for uh, Wisconsin's economy. We're a hundred and five billion dollar industry in Wisconsin, and uh, but the the key part of being such a large Economic driver is farms support local communities across this state. Uh, and when farms struggle, local communities struggle. Because even um, a, a number of years ago, I did the research on my own farm and found that 62% of my expenses are spent within a 15 mile radius of my farm. So you multiply that by the 60 plus thousand farms across this state, uh, and it's a huge impact on local communities all across.
1: All right. Kevin Krantz, thanks very much. Thank you. Farmers looking for more information during this critical time can visit the drought resources page from the State Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection. As to weather conditions, extreme heat is a definite hazard to vulnerable populations, including now here in Wisconsin. Across the southern part of the state this week, heat advisories went out with feels like temperatures topping 100 degrees. Add to that air quality alerts and it's not only miserable, it can be dangerous. We turn to Margaret Thalen, the Climate and Health Program Manager in the DHS Bureau of Environmental and Occupational Health. And thanks very much for being here. Thank you. So with heat indices over 100 degrees in southern Wisconsin, as we've said, how really dangerous can this be? It's very dangerous, and it's just becoming more and more common with climate change right
3: now, and it's dangerous to everybody. Um, The Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts projected that even some areas of the state are going to experience almost a month more of 90-degree days by mid-century, so by 2050.
1: And so, how at risk are people who have to work outdoors or vulnerable populations like the unhoused, elderly, or people with disabilities?
3: Yeah it's important to remember that extreme heat can impact anybody um but like you said uh those uh the unhoused population, older adults, young children, they are more likely to experience those kind of symptoms. Uh, For outdoor workers it's really important that those supervisors and employers like review their policies and procedures on acclimatization or put in different, or letting the workers uh, work at different priorities or find more water and shade during those times. Is that happening to your knowledge? It does there are there is OSHA policies that uh, a lot of employers use to be able to help their employer. How
1: how real are the dangers of first heat exhaustion and then heat stroke? Oh they're very real.
3: Uh, Heat related illnesses range from heat rash which which the splotchy red and the itching to heat uh, heat cramps to heat exhaustion and finally heat stroke. Heat stroke can really happen within minutes and it's really important that you recognize those signs and symptoms uh, in your friends, your family, those around you and even in yourself.
1: How do you know if you're really in trouble with those things? Yeah so with heat
3: stroke and heat exhaustion you become really dizzy, you become confused, you start rapidly breathing. It really turns dangerous when your internal body temperature is above 104 degrees and when that happens you need to be able to immediately find shade or find a cool area, be able to drink water. I know when I get really warm after a run I like to put a bag of ice on the back of my neck because that just cools you down immediately.
1: Is it safe to be even indoors without air conditioning right now? There's a lot of different factors that go into cooling a house.
3: Um, The cooler areas where there's less direct sunlight like basements or cellars are uh, generally cooler, you can, uh, you can be in there, but when we're reaching these high temperatures and a lot of people will put fans on and if they don't have air conditioning, fans actually aren't recommended when it's hmm. above 90 degree, 95, 95 degrees because it doesn't allow your body to cool. It will actually heat your body up with that air movement.
1: So with all of that said, are there enough of these kind of public cooling centers available? So, each of the local, uh, local
3: municipalities uh, will identify those public areas where people can go. Often they'll work with 211 so that people have a, a single spot to call uh, to be able to find either transportation or find those locations. So think libraries, churches, community centers, those areas are usually available.
1: We know that the Biden administration has just announced a new hazard alert system and stepped up inspections Mm -hmm. and enforcement of high-risk industries like construction. What kind of changing responses do public agencies like yours at DHS have uh, considering this kind of extreme heat?
3: Yeah, so I work for the climate and health program and we like to work a lot with other state agencies and federal agencies like the National Weather Service to be able to communicate and prepare for extreme heat. So finding ways to reach those populations that are needed. Uh, We also work a lot with uh, local health departments, local emergency management to provide data and best practices as they implement these extreme heat related response plans that they have so that people can find uh, the, the cooling centers. They can meet those unmet needs faster.
1: Because uh, presumably uh, we can count on more of this going forward.
3: Yeah, with with climate change, Wisconsin is becoming warmer and wetter, and we want to be able to empower our local decision makers, our local public officials, with that data and knowledge to be able to respond quickly to these type of events.
1: All right, Margaret Thalen, thanks very much. Thank you. In economic news, nonfarm jobs in Wisconsin grew to a record high 3 million-plus in June. Inflation has fallen, but remains stubbornly above targets. The Fed just raised interest rates another quarter point, hoping to make borrowing and investing more expensive to reduce demand for goods, services and labor. Where does all this leave us here in Wisconsin? We turn to Kevin Barr, UW-Stevens Point Emeritus Professor at the Century School of Business and Economics. And Professor, thanks very much for being here.
0: Frederica, NICE TO BE BACK, THANKS FOR HAVING
1: ME. So all in all, uh, how is the economy for folks in Wisconsin?
0: You know, Wisconsin is pretty much tracking uh, the United States in general, and the economy has really been doing quite well and much better than expected. Uh, The stock market, which is generally viewed as a leading economic indicator, the S&P 500, a benchmark index of large company stocks, that fell by 19% in 2022. That is up about 19% through seven months this year. Tech stocks declined by 33% last year. They're up about 33% this year. And the reason why everything has gone much better than expected is because economic growth through the first half has been uh, above 2%. Uh, That's viewed as moderate economic growth. There were recessionary concerns at the end of last year. That hasn't materialized. The labor market in the United States, we have 156 million Americans working. That's greater than at any other point in time in the history of the United States. It's 5 million more than were uh, employed in 2019. It's 25 million more and were employed at the kind of the bottom of uh, 2020 during during the COVID years. Unemployment, 3.6%, um, everything is very strong, continues to be very strong. If you look at the number of job openings per unemployed worker, that's about 1.5. So on balance, things have been going very good. And inflation a year ago, 9%. Now it's 3%.
1: Yeah, those uh, rate hikes really, really did the trick, though they uh, continue to impose them. So unemployment in Wisconsin is about 2.5% right now. It's still a good time uh, to get a job, and people should expect the pay to be higher?
0: Wage growth um, has been... The the Wage growth in the last two years has been higher than at any other point this century in the United States. Wage growth has been coming down the last couple of months. But the good news is, uh, although wage growth has been coming down the last couple of months, inflation has been coming down. Uh, Now you have wage growth exceeding inflation. So your purchasing power has actually uh, been been going up. Um, If I might point out, one of the main reasons why inflation has gone from 9% to 3% there were global economic factors that really drove inflation throughout the world. Inflation peaked at over 10% in the United Kingdom, in the European Union. Uh, it was over 8% in Canada. It was nearly 9% in Mexico. So you had this global inflation last year. And the trends, kind of the ups and downs of inflation, the U.S. pretty much reflects that. And it was really, really pretty much driven by... You had a nearly doubling of oil prices because Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, You had wheat prices explode by about 50% because Russia and Ukraine combined for about 30% of global wheat exports. Russia is the number one provider of agricultural fertilizer exports. So all that contributed to this huge, uh, historically high inflation around the world. So you still have the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and central banks around the world raising interest rates because that's really all they can do. They're trying to cut down demand for products, although consumer spending has remained strong, because their goal is to get inflation down to about 2% while we're still above that so you have another rate increase yesterday basically 11 rate increases since the beginning of 2022.
1: so i wanted to ask you about uh, the job market it's it's still the case that there is a shortage of of workers and uh, one economic expert i read said that the labor market is quote out of whack how does it get realigned
0: well that's what the you know that that is an excellent question because I, i think in my opinion anyway if you Look at the federal reserve and the number one thing that they're trying to do is to get that labor market back in line so in other words where you don't have this higher number of job openings per unemployed worker um that creates wages going up that can contribute to inflation so by increasing interest rates the idea is that at some point consumers stop spending on stuff because cost of financing is going to be more expensive um Business investment, residential investment, that's a little bit up and down over the last years. That's definitely felt the impacts of the increase in the interest rates. But consumer spending overall has not. But you hit on the exact point that that is why the Federal Reserve keeps on ratcheting up interest rates, even though inflation has come down rather significantly.
1: All right. Well, it is a complicated mix. Uh, So, Kevin Barr, Stephen's Point, thanks very much.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: In Milwaukee this week, the county board approved a .4 percent sales tax to shore up its budget and prevent deep cuts to services. This vote follows one earlier this month in the city of Milwaukee that raises the sales tax there by 2 percent. In education news, widespread restraint and seclusion practices in schools are disproportionately used in elementary grades and on students with disabilities. That's according to a recent report from the Department of Public Instruction, which called the rates concerningly high, with some 5,900 incidents of seclusion and 6,900 of restraint. A 2019 law required DPI to start collecting data on use of these practices and limit their use. Physical restraint is defined as a restriction that immobilizes or reduces the ability of a student to freely move their torso, arms, legs, or head. It may only be used when a student's behavior presents a clear, present, and imminent risk to the physical safety of the student or others. Seclusion means the involuntary confinement of a student apart from other students in a room or area from which the student is physically prevented from leaving. DPI says the use of these practices must be a last resort. For reaction to the widespread use of these practices, we sat down with Madison civil rights attorney, Jeff Spitzer Resnick. Having been a chief advocate uh, for laws restricting seclusion and restraint in schools, uh, what's your reaction to the latest DPI reporting that there are these thousands of incidents um, in the 2021-22 school year?
4: Well, there's a few reactions. Um, the first reaction is, well, wow, that's a lot of kids who are suffering from really an abhorrent behavior on adults' part, being secluded, restrained. I would ask any adult to imagine themselves being held against their will and being put into a room that, where no one else is, how they would feel. But second, when we look at the numbers, we see that it's a huge percentage. Almost all of them are in elementary school. So we have these young children. Now, you might ask me why are they young children? As children grow older, staff just aren't gonna, they're just not gonna try that with a bigger kid. So it, this power imbalance is, is really problematic. It's like we can so-called get away with it with, with young children. Let's assume for the moment that the ones that are reporting that they have few if any kids who they're secluding and restraining. Why aren't we not only celebrating that, but DPI finding out, well, how are you doing that? Can you help us train these other schools that are struggling? Conversely, if you have what I'll call repeat performers, and we generally do, it's usually not an aberration that a school district has lots of seclusion and restraint and then has none the next year. They're going to stay up there with their numbers. I mean, they might go up and down a little bit. What are we doing to change that? If you look at DPI's report, it simply says at the bottom, it lists a few links of resources. Seriously? Is that it? We've got to do better than that.
1: So you, you describe um, accurately how the numbers suggest that it's, many as 80 percent of the children who are uh, restrained or secluded are in grade school. Um, Same holds true for the number of students who are disabled.
4: Right. You know, look, you've got two things going on with children with disabilities. Um, One is they're simply more vulnerable and so therefore they are more subject not only in school but outside of school to be abused. So that's a problem and I consider this abuse by the way. Secondly, um, are there some of those children that may have more challenging behaviors? Of course there are. That's why they're in special education. That's why we have programs and funding, perhaps insufficient, I won't even say perhaps insufficient, definitely insufficient, uh, to help them. Um, They shouldn't beyond the butt end of trauma. And that's what seclusion restraint will do.
1: Do you think there is any place uh, in the schools for seclusion and restraint?
4: So what the law says and what I believe is true is if there's an imminent risk, and imminent means imminent, like right now, of serious bodily injury and emphasize serious, then yes, of course. People asked. I remember when we were um, trying to get the bill passed, well, wouldn't you stop a kid who was running into a street in front of a car? Of course we'd stop them, and of course we'd restrain them. Temporarily, for a short time, you let them go after the car goes by, and you redirect them away. Clearly, you don't think um, those are the only times that this is being used. Of course not, which also then begs the question, Is DPI actually examining, and of course they can't examine, they don't have the staff to examine thousands, but could they go into the top or bottom, depending on your view, the three school districts that are showing the highest propensity to seclude and restrain and actually look and see, are every one of these students who have been secluded and restrained having done so when there was an imminent risk of harm? I'm 100% sure they will find that, And then what do we do? The problem is DPI has historically and presently been complaint responsive. So yes, if someone files a complaint, if a parent says my kid was secluded and restrained and there was no imminent risk of harm, DPI will look into it, may order a corrective action plan if they substantiate that. But without that complaint, DPI is just going to say, here's the numbers, here's some resources, and it's just inadequate.
1: How do these techniques potentially harm children?
4: Well, it, it can be very traumatizing, uh, ranging from, you know, short-term trauma where a child... You know, goes home crying to their mother or father or whatever to what can be, especially if it's repeated. You know, I remember when we had the bill pass, there was a young man who literally was put into a psychotic state after repeatedly being secluded and restrained. I mean, that's an extreme. Many of these kids don't have very good verbal skills or language skills, may have none.
1: How does the enduring shortage of special education funding uh, play into the use of seclusion and restraint?
4: We have staff with increasing caseloads. So we've got you know, both a numbers problem and a training problem, and that certainly is part of why these numbers, high numbers of seclusion and restraint persist.
1: In a statement responding to Spitzer Resnick's comments, DPI Communication Director Abigail Sweat said, quote, While I take issue with the characterization of our response as inadequate, I want to make it very clear that we know that each of these data points represents the real, lived experience of a child, and that while these are steps taken by staff to protect the safety of the student themselves and the safety of others, they are also traumatic events for those very students and really all involved. Seclusion and restraint should be, is, and needs to continue to be an absolute last resort. Next week, we'll be joined by educators from DPI on this topic. To watch the extended interview with Spitzer Resnick and for more on the issues facing Wisconsin, you can visit our website at PBSWisconsin.org, and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.